welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we engage you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided, or even ignored. Prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. As we move into 2022, I'm going to be diving deeper into some of the more challenging issues faced by both patients and clinicians, including technology, clinical adoption of innovations, inequalities, and non-clinical aspects of prostate cancer. Joining me today is Alfonso Archer, a former IT sales professional who, after a prostate cancer diagnosis in 2016, decided to pursue his lifelong love and passion for music and train to be a music therapist. He's currently completing a master's degree in music therapy and researching how men with prostate cancer benefit from music therapy for his dissertation. He's also an active member of a support group for black men diagnosed with and recovering from prostate cancer. Alfonso, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Claire. So I'm looking forward to it. Why don't we just start by you telling us what your personal experience with prostate cancer has been like? Well, first of all, I knew nothing about prostate cancer as, as a young person in his 20s or even 30s. And mm -hmm. my sister told me that my father you know, had some treatment and, and she mentioned it was prostate cancer. But my, my father never told me about that. So I think you know, there was something wrong with him. You know, I was away at you know, university and so on. And, and he had some treatment and apparently it was successful. And I say apparently because he's now passed away. So I've never had a chance to even ask him about it. Wow. But when I learned about that, and, and I'm the kind of person that, you know, I like to know everything about my health and I read stuff. So I started to investigate, to learn more about prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And you know, as, as a black person, I, I discovered, you know, I was totally shocked actually when I found out that, you know, in the UK, one in eight men will get prostate cancer, but then learned that it was one in four black men. Yes. And th that kind of made me really sit up as a black person because, you know, it was just such a, a glaring disparity in that statistic. Indeed. So, so, I, so I started to do a lot of reading, you know, and I, and I, you know, found some really interesting stuff in the UK and in the US about, you know, I was trying to understand why, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then I just, you know, putting it back to me, I went to the doctor and said, look, you know, I'd like to have a PSA test from what I read. And my doctor, I mean, I'm, I'm very friendly with my doctor, but he kind of said, look, you know, Alfonso, you know, you're young, you're fit, you know. Um, and he actually pushed back on me having a, a PSA test. So Alfonso, um, can we just jump in here? How, how old were you when you had that conversation? I, with my doctor, I must have been literally just coming into my fifties. Um, it's just turned around, around about 50. Okay. Something around about that age. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he kind of pushed back. And then I pushed back on him and said, well, actually, from my reading, this is actually scary because my father had it. Yes, yes. And, and it, you know, and, it, and, it, and from what I've read, it says that family history is significant. So he, he conceded and I had a PSA test and that was all normal. And then I proceeded to then, you know, over the years to just literally keep having a check every, every, every year. And then it was, I think I got to 54, the PSA levels started to go up. And again, my doctor said, look, you know, don't, you know, don't worry, you're still within the range of normality here. So, and so then, again, and then, so Alfonso, again, you were, when you said they started to go up, you were getting yeah. them every year. Was that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I just okay. literally just have, yeah, once a year. Okay. And then it, then it started to rise and then kind of said, well, let, let's check it every six months. And so we did that and it still continued to rise. And then one day the test came through and, and it was slightly above 
the range for my age, which but but it was showing abnormal. Mm-hmm. And then again, my doctor was, you know, he was like, oh, look, it's only slightly abnormal. You know, let's leave it for another six months. And I just then stopped. I said, look, no, I said, I said, I really getting concerned here. And again, I kept pulling him back to what I read about black men. And, and I insisted that, you know, he referred me to a urologist, which he did. And then I saw the urologist and, you know, and then, you know, I had the dreaded DRE. You know, I'd already had a DRE with my doctor, the digital rectal examination, which most men dread. Yep. Um, but, but I just kind of thought, you know, you know what, I'm just going <laughs> to, you know, endure. I'm just going to yeah, endure this. Yeah, that's the word. Um, and, and so I had the same checks with my urologist and they found nothing untoward and the same results, you know, and, and the urologist even said to me, he said, look, you know, found nothing abnormal with your prostate, you know, and then he started telling me about the biopsy, which I'd already known about, I'd read about it, but, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, he was telling me how it was, how unpleasant it was. And I kind of almost, I felt just kind of just putting me off to delay it a little bit because of the, um, the pleasantries of the biopsy. But I said, no, I said, look, I'll go through with it just for peace of mind. And that's what happened. I had the biopsy. And okay, wait a minute. I'm jumping in again here. But so were you not imaged? Did you not have a an MRI scan? That's really interesting that you asked me that. So back then, and I learned after that there was such things as MPMRIs, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, mm-hmm. But, you yeah, know, sorry, I was I was imaged, but I didn't have a multi-parametric okay. imaging. It was, a, it was a conventional imaging. And that, that didn't show anything on, on the normal MRI. And then it was from the biopsy, you know, how I was diagnosed. So I wasn't diagnosed through conventional MRI. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and the biopsy showed that, yeah, um, you know, I, I had prostate cancer and it and fortunately, because I caught we caught it early, it was at, at Gleason six, which is the early stages. Mm-hmm. So we had the discussion around active surveillance, and I started to understand what that meant. You know, watchful waiting is another term that mm-hmm. was used. So, so then that's what I chose to do. You know, we we actively just saw what happened over a period of a year. So that was it. Like in 2016, I went through a whole year 2016 active surveillance, and then in 2017 my PSA had jumped. Mm-hmm. I had another biopsy and that showed me to be at uh, Gleason 7. Mm-hmm. And then that's when suddenly, you know, it, it started to get serious in my mind. And, you know, and, 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 and then suddenly, I guess the whole world of confusion opened up with all the plethora of options and treatment. And I was actually being told by a surgeon, you know, he was saying, look, you know, you know, what do you want to do? You know, your PSA has gone up, you know, your, your, your Gleason score is now at seven. And and you kind of get that whole feeling of your world kind of caving in. Yeah. And, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about this? And and and, and the, the consultant who was a surgeon was kind of saying, well, Alfonso, you know, you're young, you know, you're only 50. I can't remember what, what you know, you're in your mid 50s. Yeah. And, and I said, what would you do? And he said, well, you know, I, I would, you know, and, and literally it was that kind of whip it out kind of, Really, and I, and and I wasn't psychologically ready for that. And I knew that was a, you know, the radical, ultimate radical option would be to mm-hmm. do that. But mm-hmm. psychologically, I just was not ready for. And I said to him, "No, I'm not." I said that, you know, I said, "Well, you know, I really don't want to do that. You know, I'd rather look at other options." And and I'd already done all this reading, so I was asking him about, you know, this. I saw stuff around brachytherapy and so mm-hmm. on and so on. And then we looked at hormone therapy, so he referred me to the the right team to talk about that 
Mm-hmm. And that made more sense for me because, you know, it felt right. You know, I'm, I'm happy to go through with the hormones. I knew the downside would be menopausal-like things, you know, potential erectile dysfunction, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I felt that, you know, okay, you know, I'm, I'll do the hormones. And then I was referred for 20 days of radiotherapy. And because I'm working teaching now, I thought, well, I can actually plan and let's do this in the summer when I'm not, you know, got six, seven weeks holiday. Yep. And that was the chosen route that I went down. You know, I had the hormone treatment was horrible, mm. uh, you know, in terms of, yeah, erectile dysfunction, low moods, you know, it just hits you over a, a period of a month or so for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. That suddenly, you know, you know, I just feeling very flat, you know, kind of really hard to get myself going. And, and that's the hormones, you know, and the, that reduction in your testosterone. Exactly. Yeah. Causing all yeah. kinds of uh, psychological effects, you know, uh, you know, which was quite depressing, really, in terms of, you know, having a body that has been very fit, very active, mm-hmm. and a brain that, you know, thinks a million miles an hour. Suddenly, you know, I just felt really lethargic and constant flushes and things like that mm. and then mm. and then the, and then the actual um radiotherapy you know having to you know the way you had to prepare you know with drinking a pint of water because you know you need you know etc cetera, etc cetera, doing all going through that whole preparation mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then you know when the treatment starts suddenly you know you're kind of losing you know control of your pelvic area and you know you're literally rushing to get to the loo or get off the table you know you you just burst into go and yeah uh, and, you know so you got you know all those challenges you know for and uh, you know it, it was it was kind of dehumanizing really mm. uh, um and and quite a difficult thing to to go through and where are uh, you now i mean you know we're now four years four or five years yeah. on from that in a great place. I mean, if, uh, after the treatment, I, you know, I was on a three-month PSA cycle of testing every three months and reporting back. And, you know, after the first three months, that was fine. My PSA levels had dropped to, you know, zero point. I can't remember what it was, one. But, yeah, and, and, and then there was, a, there was a bounce. They call it the bounce effect. And actually my PSA went back up to three point something. And there was lot of concern you know from from the team there that yeah but then they talked about this bounce after the radiation then after the next three months check the levels drop right back down again Mm -hmm. and I've been having three monthly checks but I'm now on six monthly cycle because my PSA stayed constantly low and I had a last check last week and it's still 0.1 but which which is great so it's really stable I'm not on any medication Mm -hmm. uh all my functions has returned, you know, and yeah, I, I, I'm in a great place. Well, you sounded, uh, and, and that's great, but you've also been extremely honest and very hopefully so about the emotional and mental and yeah. psychological ride you've had to um, go yeah. through to get to yeah. this spot. So tell me a little bit about how music has been, you know, I don't even want to use the word comfort because that almost demeans it, how it's been such an integral part of this process. You know, music has been huge because, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been a musician since, a, you know, a very young child and, you know, learned to play piano and guitar. And, you know, I, I learned it you know, I was in church when I learned music and then becoming a musician myself. I just continued to use music for me. Uh, my, my father was, you know, schizophrenic, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia when I was very young. 
So we had a lot of um, traumatic experiences as children mm-hmm. with a father that was, you know, violent. And, you know, so, so for me, even back as a young child, music was a safe haven for me, a way to mm-hmm. close out noise in my life in family home etc so it meant a lot to me and um so when I went through my prostate cancer treatment you know I found that in that summer when I was having treatment I kind of made some radical decisions you know around well I thought well you know I'm not going to die immediately but I thought you know what I I want to do something with my music so but during that treatment during that summer mm-hmm. I actually started doing a lot more right I started writing songs um I started working on an album that I've always wanted to work on but never never you know never felt compelled or motivated to to start it but but going through you know that whole treatment you know I was suddenly writing songs and using music a lot more wow to, you know, to, to access my, my emotions around mm-hmm. what I was going through. And I found it easy for me to get those feelings out. Sometimes words are difficult. Indeed. Um, and, and music kind of was help, helping me just to, I guess, get, get to that unconscious place, really, that, that words just couldn't do, you know. So. And so then how did you make the transition to sharing that with, you know, other, I know you work with children and now you're working yeah. with, with men with prostate cancer. That, that's another big leap and, and a really wonderful one. How did that come about? When I got my diagnosis, you know, I was a salesman, you know, selling software, corporate software and, you know, doing, doing, doing pretty well in that world. Um, but, you know, when, when I got my first degree, that was, you know, in 85 and I graduated, it was a, degree in sociology, psychology, and I worked for a few years as a welfare officer using, I guess, that degree a little bit and working with, with, with people. And I was working with young men and women that had been put on remand. And if they, if they were actually not sent down, then, you know, I helped them to find, you know, services, you know, access to housing and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I really enjoyed that work, but then I didn't want to make money. So I became a salesman. You know, whilst that work was rewarding financially, I didn't feel that kind of, I don't know, there's no altruism in that work for me anyway. And, and I think that when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, I decided, you know, look, you know, I looked at my whole life and thought, you know what, I'm not actually enjoying this job. And just through my reconnection with music on a, I guess, a deeper, more spiritual level, uh-huh. you know, it was like a light bulb turning on. And I thought, you know what? I want music to be part of my life in a bigger way. That was it. You know, I gave up my, my job as a, I was a sales director for a small software company. And, and as it happened, I was, it was a new job. So I was on probation. At the end of the three months, you know, I decided it wasn't for me and set up a music business originally to teach. And that's what I started doing. So I teaching music, set my studio up at home. And then just through contacts, I managed to end up, I ended up working in a school with children with autism. It was a new school. I helped them set up music. I was using music to work with children with autism and just made loads of discoveries. You know, I knew nothing about music therapy at the time, but, you know, I was working with children that were selectively mute, for example. And after three months, one young girl started singing, you know, her parents had never heard her sing. And she just suddenly started singing in my session and we Mm. shared that the teacher shared it with her parents and it was like a miracle. Wow. And I, you know, and, and, and there were so many stories of was starting to evolve with all these different children, these wonderful children. And then that's how I, you know, one day someone came in who was a music therapist, 
And they said to me, Alfonso, what you're doing is music therapy. And I went, really? So I started to look into that. And that's how I ended up. Um, I thought, you know what, if I'm kind of being called a music therapist, which I'm, you know, it's a clinical licensed term. I, uh-huh. I, can't, I thought, you know, I might as well go and study. And that's what I did. Amazing. Um, amazing story. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the dissertation you're doing. And this is your opportunity to shout out to people about participating in it, I think. Um, what are you expecting to do and how are you expecting to help them through your musicianship? As a, as a student music therapist, you know, having worked with you know children with autism and I've worked in hospitals with clients with um, bipolar or schizophrenia or emotional trauma, you know, related to abuse, whether it's sexual abuse or physical, you know, verbal abuse and all the traumas that arise from that. Mm-hmm. You know, I've learned in a clinical way how music can help people, you know, access these um, psychosocial um, challenges, you know, emotional dysregulation and psychological distress. Mm-hmm. So I thought that, you know, when it's now in my third year, it's come to doing my dissertation, it was really just glaringly obvious for me, you know, and, 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 and that I wanted to, you know, look at, you know, how do black men, you know, in particular, I thought I'd focus on black men because of the disparities around prostate cancer for black men. And I thought, yes. you know, let's look at how do black men use recorded music and song choices, you know, to process the impact of their prostate cancer mm-hmm. from just belonging to some prostate cancer support groups and one is a black support group that you know some of these um and and what the research shows is that afro-caribbean men you know they struggle with the side effects of prostate cancer linked to these socially constructed ideas of masculinity Mm -hmm. and you know some you know in addition you know linked to things around erectile dysfunction and you all these stereotypes around black male sexuality Mm -hmm. and then uh, you know and, and link that with prostate cancer and i thought well, let's look at how, you know, music is potentially help these men, you know, and help black men to, to process some of these um, challenges, even if it wasn't through formal music therapy, but it could just be someone just putting on a song or whether it's for motivation, you know, to go through their treatment or just to help with the psychological distress. And that's what my dissertation is about just looking for participants. Oh, how just wonderful. For- and, and are these men then, are they actually talking to you about that? Are they able to express, you know, how that process is actually unfolding? Well, it, I'm literally just at the beginning of, you know, okay. I've just got, I'm at the stage of the participant recruitment. So literally okay. I've, I've got a, you know, a link that I'm sending out now to support groups and to people that can share that link for people to participate Okay, and so, you'll send that link to me, so I'll put that yes. on the program notes for um yeah, for this yeah, for this interview. Yeah, um, yeah. And I guess one other question is: Is there a link to your own music that our listeners can access on any of the music platforms? Is is that possible? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got my music. You know, I just literally put my music out there on on Spotify. Okay, I just wrote I just wrote a whole bunch of songs, and and you know, I, I'm a musician, so everything on there I play, and I just use you know, voices of people that can sing. You know, I wrote this album actually called, I called it Formula for Life. Because at the time, at the time of being diagnosed with prostate cancer, you know, literally within a month of that as well, I discovered that I had um, a condition called an AVM, an arteriovenous malformation on my brain that I, again, discovered purely by just being 
a bit persistent with my doctor and 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 so I had treatment for that as well so so wow. so and 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 so I wrote this album that I called formula for life because they gave me a formula for the chances of me having a brain hem- hemorrhage which made me decide to have this treatment for you know for this AVM wow and and so that's what I called the album formula for life basically amazing amazing yeah. well we'll have the links for um your own music for the formula for life album and for the um call out to um participants in your dissertation mm. research um how inspiring what an opportunity and an absolute joy to have you here to talk to me today thank you so much Alfonso you know it's been a pleasure Claire so thank you very much for inviting me and we'll follow up hopefully you know in a six months we might have a lot more you know sort of interesting feedback from the participants from your study I'll look forward to that thank you very much a transcript of this interview and the links we discussed to Alfonso's music um, and his research study will be available um, in the program notes on our website along with further information on diagnostics and treatment for prostate cancer. Also, additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer are available. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks so much for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. Mm-hmm.